Welcome to your December 2011 edition of Voices of Experience. I'm your host, Brian Walter. And for the next eight months, we are going to explore, debate, scrutinize, unpack, repack, comment on, occasionally mock, and continuously celebrate the art and business of speaking professionally. We're also extending the value of VOE by continuing the conversation. Just go to either the National Speakers Association Facebook page or the dedicated NSA VOE Facebook page. Then just post your questions and comments about the programs that we've uploaded there. So, let's get to it. And now, platform power with Colette Carlson, MA, Master of... Human Behavior. Human Behavior. There you go. Now, Colette... Uh, you've got some pretty darn impressive things on your website, but I loved this bold statement on here. So I'm going to quote from your own website here. Uh, Colette is an exciting human behavior expert who motivates thousands worldwide by revealing the power of speaking your truth. Now, that's a pretty bold statement, and usually you don't say, let's heighten expectations. <laughs> it's like, uh, so when they see you come on it in stage, they're, they're expecting some, you know, platform fireworks here i'm thinking here now i have heard although i've not seen this live i've seen it on video but i've not seen this live you have this almost performance art piece that you close with it's kind of like your signature clothes and it's got props and acting and it's this sequence here and everyone's going brian stop talking and let her explain what the heck this is what the heck is it? You bet. Well, it started because I originally began teaching women how to let go of their need for approval and speak their truth. And so I wanted, so many women go to bed at the end of the day and they're like, oh, they think about what didn't get accomplished. And yet they've done so much. And so I was teaching a program back when I started called Yes, I Can Say No. And I wanted to show women how much they already did in a day so they would say no to others to start saying yes to themselves. And yet women hear this all the time. It's in every magazine. I mean, I'm going to barf if I hear one more time, put the oxygen mask on yourself first. I mean, it's been so (laughs) sad that I was like, how else can I show women all that they do? And I was thinking of my own self. I mean, I've got two teenage daughters. I'm running a business. You know, I have a love relationship. I have friends since the fourth grade I still stay in touch with. It's a lot to keep going. And so I was just one day going through my own life and I was started to write down everything I had done that day. And I thought, you know what? I need to show this to women. So I went out and I found props that represent all the different roles. And at the end, I started to say, now you know why you need to apply all this information? Here's why, watch. And so brought somebody up on stage and literally dressed them in these props. But with each prop... Like a human mannequin. You got it. But with each prop, I sort of added a little comedic piece to it. So to make it fun and funnier, very first time I did it, it was such a hit that my very first thought, I mean, women rushed up to me and said, we've heard this so many times, but seeing it really made a difference. Or I wish my husband could see this. Or if there was a man in the audience, he's like, my wife's getting a better Christmas gift this year now that I see everything she does. And so I went, wow, this works. This is so cool. And my very second thought was, oh, this sucks. This is now my carry-on, you know, and I have to check <laughs> luggage the rest of my life. <laughs> so, um, but it, that's how it started, and it's more from there. Well, so how many different props do you use, and what are those props? Oh, they're all kinds now, because I customize per group. So you have so- <laughs> customized props. Customize oversized props that I managed to shove into one of those porter cases so I can carry it with me on the plane. Uh, everything from an extremely large mouth puppet 
to represent many different things. Um, to my, I had my mother knit a scarf that looks like a piece of bacon so that when I pull out the, and then you gotta get to work because you gotta bring home the, the bacon. bacon. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that. so just anything. I'm always looking at children's stores and, and props online and things that I can morph to be appropriate. So you've got your, like, your prop radar on. Totally, I'm always looking for props. My Going to trade shows are great for me because I see little things on tables that I go, oh, can I can I keep that? And You're at the airport walking by <laughs> Brooks Hey, 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 what's that? Okay. Yeah, I look at everything through prop eyes. And so it uh, it changes. So when I'm in the dental industry, I just customized for, I was a keynoter for the American Dental Hygienist Association. And so it became a day in the life of a hygienist as well as the second shift. So this, when you say customized for the client, you mean you recreate the whole routine. So this is like a format that you use that's now, in essence, like a signature format. Correct. It begins and ends the same because we both have to start getting out of bed. Sure. You know, which is, of course, when we, you know, most of us check our BlackBerry or smartphone before we even get out of bed. Because if you don't wake up, the rest of your day is shot. That's right. And so, but then I take advantage of that. So I'll say, you know, research shows 42% of people actually go to bed with their Blackberries or their smartphones. Personally, I think there's a lot better choices out there. (laughs) So I use every proper opportunity Mm -hmm. to sort of have a piece of comedic humor attached to it to make it funny. And so for the dental industry, one of the examples was I found this huge oversized straw. And so I talked one about the challenges because I basically go out and interview at least three of audience members in advance to find out what a typical day in the life of their day is and what annoys them. What are some of their pet peeves about the day? And then that's where I try and find the props. So one of I was told that the handpiece, you know, that they use to suck the saliva out of your mouth when you got all the grit in there, when that doesn't work, it's so frustrating. So and then I say, oh, and then you got to do the equipment check and you check on everything, and then you know, then of course, though so the handpiece stops working on you, and I pull out this huge straw and I say, and so you have to do it the old-fashioned way, and I basically stick it in the girl on stage's mouth and pretend to basically like suck her spit. <laughs> so it gets a laugh, they relate to it, it's funny, and again, it just builds. And I don't think the phrase, suck her spit, has ever been uttered before in any speech, ever. Let's just say that when I compare, you know, that's why I have to be speakyourtruth.com, because it's the only way I can get away with this stuff. Yes. Do they have to sign a disclaimer before you go on, you realize Colette will tell the truth during your presentation? What can I say? I'm a South Side of Chicago original, and you know, you just have to keep playing to who you are. All right, right now, I can hear the voices of hundreds, if not 2,000 NSA members who are listening to this right now screaming to me, play a sample. Now, I know they can't actually see all of the props, but I think they can use their little imaginary caps here to, as you can hear the audience reaction, and here you go through this routine. We're just going to play just a little snippet from it so people have a sense. So let's take a listen. How about this? Listener. Are you the Listener. Right, you give such good advice that everybody's always calling you, you know, wanting to give you their news. Okay, I'm sorry, I feel sorry for your kids. Get in control. All right, now, there's a role that I have been trying to pass off forever, but it just keeps coming back to me. Are you the only one that can manage to change the toilet paper roll in your house? Just when you're done, just when you're tired, you can't think of doing anything but crawling into bed. 
Bam bam bam. Bam bam bam. Because we're all so excited at night. Right? Ladies, is this you? Is this you? Yeah. Okay, now do you get it? Right, this is why we've got to lower some of these expectations. We have to get real. Because what if all of a sudden Carolyn found out that she had to take care of an aging parent? Could she keep up all these roles? Absolutely not. But as women, what do we usually end up doing? Just taking on one more. Good for you, you dropped one already. <laughs> Although I say drop that one. But I hope that through Carolyn's help, we've shown you today why you need to let go what other people think and do what works for you. All right, so now you heard it. If you actually want to see uh, Colette Carlson do this, just go to YouTube or her website. In fact, what's your website? Speakyourtruth.com. Speakyourtruth.com. And I'm sure there's a video tab in there somewhere. Right on the front page. Right on the front page here, and you can see this routine. How did you get into the whole prop thing in the first place? Well, I have to say that it really, I got comfortable with props back when I was a national sales trainer mm -hmm. because I literally used to teach a three-week initial sales training course teaching people how to sell yellow pages. Remember when those oh, were yeah, actually yeah. a popular yeah. item? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, after three weeks of eight hours a day of me in their face, mm -hmm. I had to pull some tricks out of my hat in order to hold their attention and make them laugh. Mm -hmm. And so I can still remember years ago going to Bob Pike's, you know, creative oh, yeah. training yeah, techniques. Yeah, yeah. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was one of the people that ran out and bought the magic coloring book and mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. a few other items I learned some magic tricks <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah. Okay. and if you don't have one of those they will entertain children for hours um, mm -hmm. but it's it really got me comfortable playing around with props you know I was the the gal early on who instead of asking somebody if they'd like to share you know threw a ball in their face um, and that they had to go to just go for it so I, I just played with it early on so I'm a little bit more comfortable with it today so, Colette, why do you think most speakers don't actually use props? Now, now hear me. I, I've seen a lot of trainers use toys at tables. Okay, and now here's, you know, the world's cheapest possible toys because we don't have a budget. Play with them at your table. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. But you're, you're, again, this is performance art. This is showmanship. This is, uh, you know, this is stage presence and action using these props. Uh, why do you think most speakers don't use props? Maybe they don't like Carrot Top early on. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I think it's a combination of it's more to schlep. You know, your your brain. The schlep factor. It's the schlep factor. The schlep factor was a big precursor to my decision making on this one. So they've never heard of UPS or FedEx or. Uh, sometimes it doesn't show up, uh -huh. and if you if it doesn't show up, you don't get to do your show. I think the technical term is hosed. Another prop. Um, so it really, I think the schlep factor comes into it. And I also think that they just don't see the funny, you know, or see how it can add. I have two children, you know, and I was raised by a school teacher. So my mom was always playful and goofy and, you know, let that side of herself out. I mean, I hid it for years in the name of trying to be cool. Um, but when I finally let the that crazy person in me come back out, uh, I realized how much people connected to it. And we just need to laugh and it lightens it up. 
And I think it's just, you know, drilling it down, figuring out how it's applicable in your presentation and not just something cute you're trying to add on. Because, I mean, that's why I only use it in the prop piece. I'm not just pulling props out throughout because it needs to have a statement behind it and not just, I think, be a visual aid because then it's just the schlepping factor too. So the, the props nail the point. Yeah. It's not like, I have some props. Help me find a point. Right. Exactly. And have you worked props into any other part of your presentation? Um, no. Right now, I'm leaving it strictly for the signature close. However, sometimes if I do a breakout session or I'm not doing a traditional keynote, I will use pull some of those props out to make a point. Um, and more so in a playful way. You know, I've got the one where the arm, it's just the arm and the hand. And so when people start getting overwhelmed, it's so easy to just take that and throw it into Adam and say, oh, it looks like you could use another hand. Or, you know, Do you if have you're... a rim shot that goes with that? <laughs> <laughs> no, because I don't travel with my drums. You but, don't uh... slept with a drummer. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't have David Glickman behind me on stage supporting mm-hmm. that effort. Uh, he might so... volunteer. Okay, okay, there you go. But I think that's pretty much... You know, I don't look for opportunities as much as if they just find themselves and they naturally present themselves when I'm doing it aside from the prop piece. Now, you, when you first kind of developed this, this routine, it just kind of worked out that that's how you closed. Uh, have you ever thought, should I open with this or should I warm up with the audience? Or is that that nothing is possibly going to be bigger than this reaction? So why would that the only possible place it could be is the close? Actually, I used to have it in the middle, Brian. The middle? In the middle. The powerful middle. The powerful middle where I made that particular point. And I had a couple good friends and speakers see it and say, you are so dumb, you know, (laughs) put it at the end. I'm glad they really pulled their punches on that. (laughs) Well, I hang out with pretty clear and direct people. You know, they're like, Colette, you're missing a huge opportunity. You should be closing with that, either opening with it or closing with it. And I thought, well, I don't want to open with it because then they're going to expect me to be a comedian throughout the presentation, which I'm a smarty pants, but I'm not a real comedian. So I thought better to leave on a high note than have, you know, the opening be, oh my gosh, and then and it's all <laughs> sort of down go down. Yeah, exactly. Okay. She <laughs> okay, so yeah. well. Now's the time when you should go to the bathroom. Yeah. Yes, like for the rest of the presentation. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so here's a question. Now that you have this signature closing high impact piece, do you use that in how you sell the presentation? Yes. Actually, it is selling my presentation for me. Uh, I teach everything from sales to balance just because of my history. And what has happened is a lot of my clients go on the site, and I'm talking mail, sale, or sales organization, VPs, And they will end up calling me and saying, you know, we'd like to book you for sales, but I have to tell you this. I could not stop watching that prop piece that you do in your balance program. I had to bring my wife over. I brought all my assistants over. And what it lets me know about you is that you love to have fun and you're going to make this interesting. So it actually helps me sell all my programs the way I'm set up right now. Do they then turn around and say, oh my gosh, can you do that for us? And I have. And you said yes for double my fee. (laughs) Yes, I have done it for sales audiences as well, a day in the life of a salesperson. I just did it for uh, the Women's Council of Realtors, and so a day in the life of a realtor. And it, you know, it just, they so resonate with it because they really then believe that I think and understand their world. And actually, having done all the work up front, I feel like I do as well. Welcome to another edition of Point Counterpoint. 
This time, we have Lieutenant Colonel Rob Waldo Waldman, CSP, versus Jeffrey Gittimer, CSP, CPAE, tackling the biggest issue in the NSA hallways, cold calling rocks versus cold calling is for idiots. Ten rounds. Let's go. I think cold calling rocks because it sets the foundation for a career if you're in particular starting out as a speaker. When you're on the stage talking to sales managers, for example, or new salespeople, if you haven't earned your wings in the heat of battle, picking up the phone, asking for the sale, prospecting all the fundamentals, then I don't think you've earned the right to sit in front of folks on a stage and get paid and talk to them about sales. I understand that it's fearful. There's a high probability of rejection when you pick up the phone and call. But what I found out after nine years of speaking, having built my business on the phone is that if you prepare, if you approach the cold call, not as a cold call, but what I call a bold call, do your intelligence, gather data, find out about that prospect and differentiate yourself from all the other people that are calling them up, then you'll have a competitive advantage. The key is preparation, connection, and research. And supplementing that cold call with all the other marketing uh, wing tips and, and things in your toolbox to make things happen. Cold calling sucks. No one likes it. The people doing it hate it. The people receiving it hate it even more than the people doing it because it's an interruption, a rude interruption. My first 2,000 speeches have been booked without even making a call because I created what is known as value-based attraction. If you cold call, you'll receive two or three hits out of 100. That means 97 people are angry. It is by far the lowest percentage of any type of sales call that you can make. It actually is the worst place to make a sale. It's a good place to learn how to sell if you can take, if you're resilient enough to be able to take the rejection. But the bottom line is, it's kind of discouraging. My three-word definition of cold call is waste of time. You could be spending the same amount of time writing, and in today's world, you can, you can use the business social media, you can use a blog, you can use your own website, you can create an email magazine, and you can create value-based information that would have that same person be the recipient of it, and rather than hanging up on you, they will actually receive the value message that you've created and sent to them and call you on the phone. That person wants to buy. But my audience is, when I, when I talk about the stupidity of cold calling, I ask them, which would you rather have, 100 cold calls or 100 referrals? And they go, oh, referrals. I say, how about 100 cold calls or 50 referrals? And they go, oh, 50 referrals. I said, well, okay, how about 100 cold calls or 10 referrals? 100 cold calls or one referral? And they will all go for the referrals. I said, so why don't you spend Tuesday, instead of cold calling like a fool, why don't you spend it going out to your existing customers and earning referrals? And to every sales manager, I say, if you think cold calling so great, why don't you make them? Why don't you go out with your salespeople and knock on doors and get the same kind of rejection that they got? And maybe that would knock a little sense into your head so you would stop doing what is stupid antiquated and over. Well, Jeffrey, you bring up a lot of great points. It's what you built your career on, and, and it's very, very uh, important to, to really dig deep into what you said. But I truly believe that cold calling has to be a supplement to all the other uh, marketing that you're doing. I understand that it's not easy to pick up the phone. you got to prepare. You have to really find a different way to, uh, to, to, 
you have to find a way to differentiate yourself when you pick up the phone. What I talk about in a lot of my programs, especially to young speakers, is that if you approach it as a cold call, if you don't know anything about the prospect, then you're eventually gonna get shot down. You cannot solely rely on social media, referral marketing, and all that stuff if you haven't done the legwork to build the relationships. It's gotta be part of the marketing mix. And the bottom line is this, the more people get into social media, the more people rely on referrals and all the electronic media, people aren't picking up the phone anymore. I've signed 10, 20, $30,000 deals because of people who called me on the phone, delivered a value proposition, connected, followed up, and did all that other stuff. That's not to say I'm not going to listen to somebody who's going to uh, send me a you know, letter in the mail or, or meet me at a convention and build a relationship. But I like when people call me on the phone and I have a connection, a personal connection. Is it as fast as a referral? No. Is it as fast as a, uh, a spinoff from, from an event? Absolutely not. Jeffrey, I made ten dollars to $30,000 in commission-only sales for three or four years picking up the phone and calling, connecting, and following up. If I don't any, disagree with you, you know, but that was 10 years ago. That was 15 years ago. Cold calling is dead. I, I have a mantra of sales. It's not who you know, it's who knows you. And if someone reads what I write and calls me up on the phone and wants to book with me, that's better than 100 I cold agree calls. with that 100. too. I, uh, and and, and I, I think you have to look at this from the perspective of most of the speakers that are listening to this aren't salespeople. You're blessed. You have the yeah. talent, you have the capability to pick the phone up and be affable, but somebody who's speaking on a different topic than sales, they don't even like salespeople. They walk into a car dealership and they want to do anything but talk to a salesperson. They want to avoid salespeople and they themselves are uncomfortable with it. So I'm challenging the listener that the alternative strategy to doing this is putting yourself out in the marketplace, becoming known as an expert in your field and having those people that, you have, that you've made the outreach to find you, like you, and call you. I, was, I cold called in New York City. There is no harder place to cold call in New York than New York City. Mm -hmm. But I did it in the 70s when you could actually knock on someone's door. They would swear at you, of course, but they would let you in at some point in time. Now you can't even get in. And when you're calling somebody like a meeting planner or you're calling somebody like a, a potential decision maker, they're busy and they don't want to talk to you. If, if I was going to cold call somebody, the first thing I would do is send them my book right, right. and say, hey, I'm sending you an autographed book and all I'm asking you for is an email to tell me that you got yeah, it. Yeah, and you're seeding, you're seeding the market. You're, yep. you're marinating the steak before you put it, put yeah. it in the oven. And a lot of people just go and they literally go in in a cold. And I, I can't disagree with all those comments, Jeffrey. It's important. No, it's impossible to disagree. And, and you know why? A, I'll tell you why you can't disagree. I'm right. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and, the, <laughs> and the, challenge, the challenge for you is to take the skills that you have as a salesperson or a cold caller and modify them so that you can create an outreach, people will look at your outreach and, and come get you. And, and, and like I said, it's all part of the marketing mix. Uh, I, you want the referral marketing, you want the attraction marketing, you want your name out there, it's gotta be part of it. But I think it's so rare these days, very few people are picking up the phone. You can still differentiate, you can see the market, you can send but them I, a book. I feel and like if you know, you're the speaker and you gotta cold call somebody to book the speech, it, I think it's just it not, is, and, and I agree it's not for the refined 10, 30, 40,000 dollar a keynote speaker but when you're when you're earning your wings in the business there's nothing wrong with picking up the phone you gotta break through that rejection and prepare and I'm not saying that it's everything hi I'm calling because uh, 
Um, I was hoping for some rejection today, and I was wondering if you weren't interested in what I was doing. They probably would laugh and, and probably want to talk more with you that way. Maybe. Yeah, but they're, they're, most of the speakers don't have the guts to be able to start with and, something and, like but, that. And, but if they can have somebody calling for them, in particular, I have somebody working for me that's doing some relative cold calling. Mm -hmm. And he's like, look, just connect with them. Tell them I'm a New York Times bestseller, fighter, blah, 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 blah. Seed it, plant it, and then we can just follow up. You know, a lot of these people, if you if you get, have a little a decent message and an email, it could work. But most of them are just going to click delete. I understand. If that. you're cold calling, here's a technique that I've used for for years that actually has some fun to it. The guy on the other end of the phone says, "I'm not interested," and which, by the way, means you are not interesting. Just understand that part. But if the guy says, I'm not interested, you go, wow, I'm really great to hear, I'm really happy to hear that. Because usually it takes me four or five people who say I'm not interested in order to get the one person that is interested. You're in my second call today. I still need three more. Do you know anybody else that might not be interested that I might be able to call and if have a little fun with them? Yeah, and, and having that personality come through, it's the connection, it's the heart-to-heart -heart, uh, thing that you just can't through. A, you can't get through a social media campaign or through referrals. People want to see something different from you. They if do, I, but they have YouTube now. They have all, you can make your cold call on YouTube. But they have to search YouTube. you, they have no. to find you, and that's that's great, but you better have done your, you better have done your time, got out, and, Maybe. and, and but if you're speaking, the market. If you're, if you're speaking to bankers, there's a banker magazine. If you're speaking to chief financial officers, get there's a CFO magazine. There. I agree. Get in that, their show value. And, and get in, get into their blog, have an interview with them, talk about the value proposition. Call, maybe if you're going to make one cold call, call the association and see if you can get on that speaking dais. But to call the customer directly, I think associations are a great place to make a cold call because they don't they don't really have the, the full understanding of who's in their marketplace that could potentially impact the audience. It's, but the guy who's running the sales team who wants a sales meeting, or the the the, the woman who's running the HR department who wants to have you know somebody talk about some, those people already know who they want. Right, right. They sit around a table and they select five or six people and they outreach those either through a speaker bureau or calling the speaker directly. And you better make sure that if you're going to do it, you've got the marketing materials, you've got the video, yeah. all the back end to support it. My first deal that I got, my older brother's part of the International Sanitary Supply Association is a distributor rep out there doing a few Sells toilet I've, paper, is that what it is? Absolutely. Okay. People need to wipe just say that, day, International day, Sanitary exactly. Department. But it's one of the... Sell soap and toilet paper. One of the biggest <laughs> international uh, conventions ever it's out of McCormick place every year thousands and thousands of people so my br brother said listen you got to call these guys so I didn't have a demo video I didn't have anything I had a basic simple website you had guts I, ha I did I did you had and, guts. I knew, and I leveraged the relationship with my brother and leveraged it and got in there and hit their hit their point I knew they always hired military type speakers uh, Secretary of State James Baker was one of the speakers that had so if you're a former year. soldier you have a real in <laughs> but if you're not you better do it my way. <laughs> What's your speaker IQ? Yes, now it's time to quickly quiz you on the non-trivial trivia from the speaking meeting industry. You will hear a series of multiple choice, fill in the blank, and true or false questions. For every correct answer you make, you are likely superior to your NSA colleagues. But remember, in this game, what you don't know may hurt you. Number one. The worldwide meeting and events industry is worth $650 billion. 
$230 billion of which is in the U.S. According to Market Research Media's latest forecast, between 2010 and 2015, virtual events will grow to A, $5.6 billion, B, $11.6 billion, or C, $18.6 billion. Hmm? Hmm? Think you got it? And the answer is C, $18.6 billion. Virtual, here we come. Number two, true or false, according to On24, a global webcasting and virtual event agency, a virtual meeting with 2,300 participants reduces carbon emissions by the equivalent of about 17,000 trees. And the answer is... That's right. True. Number three, and listen carefully because this one is a little complicated. Fill in the blank. According to brain researcher and author Dr. John Medina, when a presenter is making a key point or sharing a piece of crucial information, simply adding a blank will boost attendee recall three days later from 10% to 65%. Hmm? Hmm? You think you got it? How many of you, for the fill in the blank, said story? Well, you are wrong. Yeah, sorry. The answer is picture. Simply adding a picture to that point will boost attendee recall from 10 to 65%. Perhaps that's the actual power in PowerPoint. And finally, number four, another fill in the blank. According to Alpha Brand Media in a wildly distributed article in the Search Engine Journal, 49% of blank apps users either never or rarely check their blank app. And the the fill-in-the-blank answer is Twitter. (laughs) Yeah. So, who's really the twit? And now here's the question all of us need to ask ourselves. Who wants to be a speaker millionaire? All right, I know a lot of us would like to be a speaker millionaire, so we are talking to speakers who have actually achieved that level. Now, perhaps calling them speakers isn't even the right way to address it because they have an enterprise. They have a business that they've built that probably is speaking as a key component. But we're going we're gonna to start talking to them and finding out what shifts, what things they did that allowed them to get to that level so that we too can emulate them. We've got Scott Halford, CSP and Emmy award-winning writer and producer. So what did you get an Emmy Award for? I got an Emmy for two interesting things. One was for a bicycle ride, basically. Okay, let me uh, Yeah. Bicycle ride. No, I mean, come on, you say. But the, the idea was that we were in the United States trying to emulate the Tour de France, mm-hmm. and it was kind of following that. And then the other one was for capital punishment. I mean, really closely related topics. <laughs> So, bike riding and capital punishment. Yeah. Now, were these documentaries? Were these movies? What What were these? Documentaries. Docu- and you wrote and produced these? Yes. Or produced yep. Them? yep. Wrote, produced, interviewed. Just gave my heart, soul, everything about myself to them. And then decided that that wasn't going to work. Forget so, that. Yeah, I'm okay. not doing, yeah, I got from, the trophy. From it's capital like... punishment to speaking. That's what, where I went. <laughs> so, when we're thinking, when we say, okay, here's a speaker. Uh, here's here's a, uh, someone in our association who's built their enterprise to a million-dollar level here. And we're thinking, how the heck do you do that? So, we want to kind of 
go with you on this journey from good to really great when it comes to, you know, the financial uh, rewards here. How did you start out as a speaker after you were done with your Emmy Award winning capital punishment deal? Yeah. First thing, one thing that I want to be really clear on is that I think that when people hear this, they'll probably think a millionaire and a bit a business that makes a million dollars are two different things. Yes. And so this is not Robin Lee. No, lifestyles no. of the rich right, and famous right. Scott Alford here. So just to be very clear, uh, Patricia Fripp always used to say, it's not how much you make, it's how much you keep. I firmly believe in that for sure. So, so you make a million, keep yeah, slightly less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the idea is really when you're when you're looking at your business, you want to ask, ask yourself, you know, if you want to keep, if you want to make a million dollars or keep a million dollars, you're going to probably need to make two or three or four million dollars, just depending on you know what your overhead is. But when I started, to answer your question, when I started, uh, I did what I think everybody else did, and that was I was a sole proprietor, went out, spoke, that's how I made my money. And when I decided to shift in my business, a big shift for me, when it was, and it was hard, is when I gave up the whole idea of being selling Scott Halford and decided to sell Complete Intelligence, my company. Um, sell the idea of Complete Intelligence, not sell it. And I took on a business partner. She has literally almost a half of the business. And that's just so foreign to a lot of speakers. The idea of I'm going to go out and work and this person's going to get basically a half of the business. But the fact is, is that she goes out and does something that I don't do. And she creates huge, huge um, synergies with clients. So somebody says, I want to book Scott for a program. We put Marty on the phone and she she actually explores with them in a way that, that I don't think I ever would do. And she finds out that they don't want a program. They want a solution. And here's what we provide in that solution. And it ends up being 10 programs or 20 programs or even more different things that we do. Um, so she'll sell a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollar contract inside of an organization just off of one inquiry for a program. So there's that. So, so key first step was saying I'm not just going to be a sole proprietor, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to just be pitching myself. So it, it took it from a practice to a business. Yeah. It was actually pretty hard because, you know, we get our egos wrapped up and I want people to go to scotthalford.com and still if they go there, they'll, they'll find me at Complete Intelligence. But actually one of the coolest moments for me was when my clients who I'd been working for, who knew me as Scott Halford and didn't know of the company, when they started referring to, we want to get Complete Intelligence to come in here. We want to They looked at us as an entity and, and with that, it gives it a lot more clout. There were a lot more things that we could do. We could start introducing, which was another layer for me, start introducing other practitioners in there. Um, and that's that whole idea is kind of foreign to, not foreign, but you know, I think that a lot of speakers think that... Um, it's at least a different county if it's not foreign. It's a, right, exactly. It's a different county, different, different state. That, that the idea is that you go out and you make money off of what you do. Well, it's difficult to actually spread yourself out in all of the ways that your clients will want you spread out. And so when I'm not available, we have people who we have either trust in and mm-hmm. we send them in or who do what I do and they come in under our banner and we take a piece of that. But we've begun to do collaborative work with a variety of different other practitioners. And we call them practitioners because we don't like the idea of just speaker. We want somebody who actually has the ability to go in and I'm in the realm of neurobehaviorism and emotional intelligence, people who are capable in that arena. So they need to be able to interpret data and look at emotional intelligence and other aspects of it and be able to do that. So they're practitioners in the business. So we have a stable of practitioners and we create 
business off of them. So it sounds like you're saying that we became a more lucrative term than me. Yeah. And when we use we, we really mean we. Instead of the royal we. <laughs> right, right. It's me, my dog Emmy. Right. And my mother. It's always so funny to hear a speaker who you know is a sole proprietor say, well, we do this and we, it's just, so I decided to, to make it legitimate. So in making it legitimate, I guess how many people needed to be with your enterprise before these clients started perceiving competitive intelligence instead of that place Scott Halford works for? Well, yeah. So when it's complete intelligence, complete by the intelligence. way, yes, indeed, what, what and, did I say? Wait, competitive intelligence, but that's good too. We like that. <laughs> it took some time, probably three, four years before we reached critical mass on the idea mm-hmm. of complete intelligence and just branded everything. The website, everything was complete intelligence, complete intelligence, complete intelligence. And then we also have an associate base inside of corporations where we um, we certify them in one of the instruments that we do, and they are inside of large corporations, and they um, use that instrument for thousands of people, and we make a per-head strike off every one of those things, and we, there are associates, we keep them informed and educated on this product, we keep them up to date on the latest brain research, emotional intelligence research. So a big shift, I think, for speakers is the idea that you don't have to be the one to deliver it. Which is kind of hard, right? Because mm-hmm. we think that that's what our business is. Well, I look at myself as an information delivery business. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's going to come in me speaking. Sometimes it's going to come via the internet. Sometimes it's going to come in audio, video, other people. And however that needs to come, um, that's kind of the broader thinking aspect of it. And it's difficult if all you're doing is delivering one talk and doing one thing to kind of proliferate it. So so shift one was I'm going to go from a practitioner to actually being a business. And then the other shift was getting others to start delivering your material. Now, I think I want to make sure I understood the shift. You started developing profiles and other type of materials to develop an associate base. So these are people who have that you certify in companies because now you're getting to some big numbers. And I think big numbers times any dollar amount equals lots. Lots. More. More. Yeah. And... And I got over the idea that that I'm not the only person in the world that my clients could love. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. And it's great. I think, I think that's a hard shift for a lot of speakers because mm-hmm. we just get really focused on the idea that it's just got to be me. That's cool, uh, but it doesn't grow business. It just is not a business mindset. It's a sole practitioner mindset that says, you know, I'll make the money that I can make for me, but if I'm not working, I'm not making money or, or very much. So having accomplished this with, with your business, Complete Intelligence, see, I said it right that time, Complete yeah. Intelligence. So you had to have this enterprise. In doing that, have you pretty much given up you being a speaker or that you still, it's like, you know, I can do this plus I can still get the glory myself and enjoy that aspect of it? Well, it's so it's a great question. So a lot of people will ask me, are you, are you even speaking? Well, actually, that's what I am doing. That's the, the I'm now the face of the business, and it sells everything else that we do, and it actually gets gets kind of a, a face on all of the other things. And so, if you're a great speaker, if you're out there and people are loving what you're doing, I would say create a way that people can consume more of what you're doing in a variety of different ways that actually don't require you to show up. And, and they will do that. So what we did is looked at that, that whole chunk, and said, well, what could we do that would be delivered to their desktop that would teach almost the same thing, not quite, but almost the same thing, and that they would pay a price per head. And so we developed an online test and teach system in emotional intelligence that they still want their people to learn emotional intelligence, but I can't fly them in. So mm-hmm. they're going to go through this test and teach process for six months. 
they pay a price per head. Um, they actually end up, it's actually a lot more lucrative from a business standpoint than it is just to do a two-day kind of thing. Then if they want to do a workshop or a talk, then they can do it. So it's just a different way to consume it, um, and it's pretty robust. So we have that component that's going on that makes checks show up in the in the mailbox that sometimes I don't even know about. And so we have a, a portion of the company that just actually is out there selling just that piece, and it doesn't require me to show up. Then there's a part that does require me to show up. So it's, I think, you know, if you're going to create a business and you want to create a large business or, or just a, a lucrative business, um, it requires the shift from me to, to us and the whole idea of proliferation of your information. So it's really, you know, are you a professional speaker or are you a professional information person? And I like that speaking is a piece of it, but if it was the only thing, then I wouldn't be where I am. And now, awesome excerpts. In awesome excerpts, we are actually hearing insightful snippets from a top speaker or two's live presentation. First up is Barbara Glanz, CSP CPAE. Now, in this clip, Barbara delivers her signature story to an audience as a context setter for the rest of her presentation on customer service. Now, notice how she immediately makes the connection for them, the connection between the feel-good point of her story and the stark reality of a bottom-line statistic that should cause shivers of concern to ripple through her audience. I want to tell you the story that this whole presentation is based on. About seven years ago, I was asked to speak to 3,000 employees of a large grocery store chain. And they brought everybody. They brought the truck drivers, the baggers, the cashiers, the produce people, the meat packers, everybody. One of the things that I said to them, and I was talking about customer service, one of the things I said to them is, what can you do, whatever your job is, what can you do to make the customer feel special. How can you add your personal signature to whatever your work is? I give every audience I speak to all over the world my home phone number. You all will have it on your handout when you get your CD. Because I want to hear from you, I want to hear your ideas. So about a month after I had spoken, I got a phone call from a young man. He told me that he was a bagger in one of the stores and was also a person of Down syndrome. And he said, Barbara, I liked what you said. And he said he went home that night and he asked his dad to help him with the computer. He said they set it up into three columns and that every night when he goes home, and by the way, it's been seven years now, he finds a thought for the day. And he said, if I can't find one I like, I think one up. Then he and his dad type it six times on a page. He prints out 50 pages every single night. He cuts them out, signs his name on the back, and the next day, for every person's groceries he bags, he puts a thought for the day in the bag. About a month later, the store manager called me, and he said, Barbara, you won't believe what happened this morning. He said, when I went out on the floor about 9.30 this morning, the line at Johnny's checkout was three times longer than any other line. He said, I went ballistic. I was yelling, get more people out there, get more lanes open. And he said, the customer said, no, no, we want to be in Johnny's lane. We want the thought for the day. So he said, who do you think is the most important person in our whole store? And you see, most of us would say that isn't a very important job, but he made it important. 
He said, one woman came up and said, I only used to shop once a week, but now I come in every time I go by because I want the thought for the day. <laughs> what happens when you go in the store? Yeah, you spend money. Three months later, he called me back again. And he said, Barbara, you and Johnny have transformed our store. He said, now in the floral department, when they have a broken off flower or an unused corsage, we used to just throw them away. But he said, now they go out on the floor and they find an older woman or a little girl and they pin it on them. He said, one of our meat packers loves Snoopy, so we ordered 50,000 Snoopy stickers and every time he packages a meat, his piece of meat gets a Snoopy sticker on it. Now I said, I don't know about dog stickers on meat. <laughs> but he said, we are having so much fun and our customers are having so much fun. And all through the store, people started putting their little personal signatures on their work. And end of the story, this is not in the book, but a year ago, February, and, and this is a little bitty store in the Midwest. I don't use name or location because Johnny's parents have asked me not to. But the manager of the store called me, and they just won the award for the very best store in the entire United States. And all because of one little guy, one little guy with a whole lot of strikes against him. And so what I say to my audiences and to all of the people out there is, if little Johnny can do it, you know, there's no reason why every one of us can't do it. And so that gives you the framework for what we're going to talk about. As we talk about customer service, why do people leave an organization? 1% die, 3% move away, 5% develop other friendships. Only 9% leave because of the competition. And we worry so much about the competition. 14% leave because they're dissatisfied with the product. But look at the last statistic. 68% of the people who either leave your organization or badmouth it if they don't have a choice do so because of an attitude of indifference by some employee. And what do we mean by indifference? Just don't care. Just simply don't care. In that excerpt, Barbara proved that the so-called soft motivational story has real-world hard application. All right, our next awesome excerpt is from Omakongo Dibinga with Upstander International. Now, Omakongo is a speaker, poet, musician, and diversity consultant. Now, his passion is encouraging organizations and individuals to take a stand against ignorance and injustice in people's lives and in the workplace. But for us in this excerpt, it's his talent for blending speaking and poetry that is so instructive. After listening to this, imagine how less impactful this diatribe would be if Omakongo merely gave a speech or a poem. What works is the combination. Ever get that? not so thin feeling? Ever wish that you could look down and see your toes without having to bend halfway over? Ever wonder how you can turn that two liter into a six pack without doing a sit up? Well, you're not alone because you see millions of Americans in this fast food nation are just like you, but have no fear. Science is on your side because now you can lose all the weight you want and you don't even have to exercise. No more running, exercising and eating right because now they got pills, potions, and diet programs to keep us all looking tight. 
I mean, man, why get up and do a sit-up when you can just get one of those abaways and vibrate all day until the pounds just wither away? Or maybe you can try diet programs like Jenny Craig, Atkins, Jack LaLanne, or any other kind, as long as you can stay in that McDonald's line and out of the gym. Science got your back, man, so if you want to lose that fat, man, don't lose hope. Drink more Coke, because you never have to jump rope again. You don't have to run, get in the ring, and bob and weave. Man, real soon you won't even have to breathe, because they're concocting new formulas to suck that fat right out of you in one swoop. Whoosh, it's better than liposuction. From the blob to Tyra Banks and Wesley Snipes, get that body looking real tight without ever having to eat right. No more fruits, vegetables, and vitamins for dinner, because new technology will keep us all looking thinner. And for you poets out there, do you know how I stay slim? I've created my own new formula called poetry. You see, I recite five poems a day at key hours and the excess weight just rolls right off, but only if the poems are three minutes and 10 seconds tops, otherwise I'm wasting my time while augmenting my waistline. You see, I may sound like I'm joking, but I'm really hoping that we'll take better steps to improve our well-being, because we're seeing that Americans are becoming larger as the search for quick fixes reaches new heights. When we want to be able to watch eight hours of TV a day and ruin our sight, PlayStations all night, poison ourselves with mad cows and Sprite, and still ask, how can I lose this cellulite? I mean, is this not ridiculous? Haven't you simply realized that you are what you eat or you eat what you are? Didn't that little yellow cartoon germ tell you that you are what you swallow, so stop eating crap like there's no tomorrow? I mean, isn't it that simple? I mean, I've had children coming to my literature class literally eating cake frosting for breakfast, while many misguided Muslim children break fast at Burger King, so they're never really purifying themselves. For we live in a society where children have strokes at six years old because McDonald's is the new home-cooked meal for breakfast and lunch with Kentucky fake chickens for dinner and leftover Savile's cheesecake for dessert. Man, it hurts for me to have to say all this, but too many of us are losing our workout ethic, spending more money so we can move less and eat more, while many of the world's poor eat one meal a day. You see, this is all unnerving because here we're not even serving our children what they need. So on both sides of the world, our children are malnourished since we eat the same junk in our schools. Oh God, I ask, how have we become such fools committed to poisoning ourselves, eating hamburgers composed of 30 different cows, and we can't even drink eight glasses of water a day? And now obesity is supposed to be genetic? How pathetic are we becoming when we start blaming our condition on our forefathers and foremothers instead of eating less ice cream and movie popcorn with that extra butter? You see, the fast food industry makes billions of dollars a year simply because we've lowered our health standards by eating foods flavored with animal and chemical waste. Because in the production process, our food loses all of its original taste, but I'm probably wasting my time since many of you all have already decided to die early by the way that you dine. But before you leave, better go to IHOP. I hope that you will take heed to what I'm saying. The world's richest nation is quickly becoming the most obese and won't be around long enough to enjoy the fruits of its labor, because fruit is no longer part of the diet. But if you want to join me in the fight to save our lives, then understand the words of this diatribe and eat right and exercise, and maybe we can reclaim our nation's well-being one pound at a time. And now another journey. We're now talking with Chad Hymas, CSP. Chad is a speaker who never wanted to be a speaker and now wouldn't change it 
for anything. Now, Chad, that's... <laughs> that's a good introduction. I like that, it. I, that is like the one intro I have not done for any <laughs> other speaker on and VOE. It, usually it's like so-and-so, a speaker who lusted from age two to be a speaker on stage. True. Uh, so let's let's kind of go back here. Kind of give us the you know the fast summer here. Uh, why did you never want to be a speaker, and how did that suddenly change? Well, I'll, I mean, most speakers, at least within our organization, they have they want to be out there speaking on the platform. I think I'm with a majority of human beings. Most of us hate speaking in front of our peers, and so I think it's important for our listening audience to know that it never was my dream to speak, and it uh, happened uh, after an accident that dramatically changed my life. I was introduced to NSA uh, by a colleague and a friend, uh, CSP, CPA, Art Berg. My objective in coming to my first NSA event was not to be a speaker. I was simply in following somebody that gave me hope. So mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I think it's we always talk about giving hope to other people on the platform. Mm-hmm. That guy gave it to me off the platform, and any time I could be around him, I wanted to be around him. Cool. So you said after your accident, sir. So after my accident, which rendered me a quadriplegic, uh, had an accident building my dream. My dream was to be a cowboy, be a farmer, have a lot of animals, and to have a lot of green fields, grow green grass. Not not the grass that Dale Erdman likes. I'm talking alfalfa. <laughs> so, so that that was my dream. So I, I and, and broke my neck while building that. And became paralyzed on all four limbs, just like just like that that guy, just like Art Burke, exact same level. And that's why I think I I literally loved him so much, as he taught me, gave me hope to be a better person, better dad. And so I went to my NSA event, and there he introduced me to a few other people while I was there. And two days later, he passed away. Boom. I felt a void that needed to be filled, and it came to me. And here we are 10 years later, and I'm doing BOE with you and uh, have been to all seven continents. Uh, and, I feel, and I don't say that boastfully. Very grateful. And 38 countries sharing my message. Uh, it's been a dream. Like uh, many, you are living a dream. Unlike most of the people listening, this wasn't actually original uh, dream. Sure, sure. But putting aside how you got here, you have put on a very sophisticated business mindset. And you have developed your business in a very systematic, but shall we say, unconventional uh, way. So can you describe your business model or your business journey? First of all, you need to know that my mindset has always been business. So before I, uh, I was business oriented, I had a, a construction company that helped build my ranch dream because no bank wanted to lend a kid a million and a half bucks to go start a ranch. And so I started, so I want you to know that I've had a mindset of always being, trying to be business oriented, but I started doing everything myself. Didn't go pay some, uh, you know, some Eagle Molons for me. So I, I, I model my speaking business after my construction company. I started doing construction by myself. I was a one-man operation that turned into 35. Today we're a four-person four operation, five if you count myself. But I started doing everything, Brian, by myself. Mm-hmm. Everything. Um, everything from the cold calls to telling people that I, I'm willing to go speak for free. I did 100 free engagements before I ever got paid for one. Did 100 free. Um, not 101? Not, not, no, okay. no. I did Because I was counting. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. But I got counsel. Because mm-hmm. when I started to speak, I had to talk to people. And Art had passed away. 
Mm-hmm. And so I went and talked to somebody, and Terry Paulson gave me that advice at NSA. He said, you ought to, because I didn't know how to speak in front. He said, well, go speak for free, and what do you want to speak? So I started talking at Assembly, sharing my story, which really doesn't relate. But that's how I started. And today yeah. I don't share hardly any, you know, any of my story in my, in my messages. Maybe, maybe 5% is my, my story of the accident. But I quickly want to get into some topics that I have developed over the course of nine years. Leadership, customer service, and mastering change. Those are the areas of expertise that I am growing myself, and that is my job. My job is to grow my area of expertise on a daily basis. And so you asked, how did I start? I started doing everything myself without any expertise in the speaking world. I just had what I had. I had an accident, started to share it with Chambers of Commerce for free. And getting free engagement, some people have come in and said that it's, it's not hard at all. It's not hard yet. Not hard to sell free. Not hard to sell free. So when did you start shifting from, which I think is interesting that, you know, your initial story was dealing with your accident, what what I would call an overcoming story. It's like, okay, triumph of the spirit, triumph of diversity. It's like, but now your, your story is about business acumen. You made that transition. When did you start making that transition? And how did you get people to perceive you and your enterprise, not from a, I have a paraplegic or I have a quadriplegic quadriplegic story to now, you know, I have a sophisticated business expertise that you want to get some. Boy, and you want me to answer this truthfully. That's always a good idea. Yeah, it is, especially (laughs) when we're here recording. I, um, confidence that Mm -hmm. I could go out. I actually, I actually already was an expert in change because I've experienced it and knew firsthand how I handled it. Mm Mm-hmm. I'll say that again because there's a lot of people listening here that don't think they're experts in their field or some that might need that. Confidence is huge. Exemplifying off the platform what you teach when you're on it gives you the greatest credibility while you're standing or sitting on the platform. Mm -hmm. So I think people have areas of expertise that they've lived their whole life that they need to develop and that I need personally to develop more and more and more. So I really had areas of expertise. I just didn't know how to, to teach it. So I took advice from... Jim Cathcart. And I started reading books. And the Acorn Principle was the first book that I read from an NSA author. And I started reading lots of books on those areas of customer services, what that book is about. And I started reading and reading. And then I started to get confidence to where when somebody said, Chad, what do you talk about? Well, I talk about leadership, mastering change, and, and team building. Uh, what do you charge? That was a question I hadn't heard before. And I'm just going to tell you real quick how that happened. Mm-hmm. Somebody asked me what I would charge. This was my first out-of-state Mm-hmm. My first out of, out of, out of Utah. Yep. Somebody asked me to go to Las Vegas. And I, I said, how about if you just pay for my flight? And the guy said to me, how about I pay you $1,000 so I don't look like a fool in front of my boss. And you come talk to us for 60 minutes. And we'll take care of your first class flight. And you can stay with us for a couple of days and mingle with people. And I thought to him, 1000 bucks for 60 minutes, 24 hours a day, seven days a week? That's a pretty good income, right? <laughs> and th- that was the first paid engagement I ever got was $1,000. And because the customer forced it on you. He forced it on me. And then I knew after that, the confidence was there to carry value. And I knew that everything I'd heard from the platform and talking to people in the hallways about fee, I had the confidence to start charging whatever I thought the value was. And when people started buying it, it gave me personally more and more confidence to be able to sell it. And suddenly you proved to yourself because the customer like insisted on paying you money. Right. I can make money doing this. That's right. So you start doing this, doing this, doing this. Right. And then suddenly you realized one of you is not enough. For sure. As soon as we hit six figures, mm-hmm. as soon as we hit six figures, I um, I realized that I needed to bring somebody on board because I wanted to do 
I wanted to grow bigger. I wanted to go higher in the six figures. And I wanted to do seven figures. And and NSA taught me the streams, product streams and webinars and different uh, long-term contracts, all of which we learn in the hallways and in breakout sessions. I wanted to make, make a living at doing all the, and offering a service to people, make a living at a few of those select things that, that I could apply. And I needed to have staff to do that. So once I hit a benchmark and I hit a certain goal, let's say that goal is 150,000, I would bring on employee number two to take care of this. And as soon as I could afford employee number three, we hit that. And now we're at four and we're, we're, we're businesses, business has been better the last two years than it ever was the first eight. I mean, it's, so you thought you'd wait until the entire economy crashed to peak here. I mean, man, I'm, good, you know what? Odds, yeah. And I, 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 you know, the economy did crash and to tell you that I didn't feel that would be a lie. I did in niches. So I had to change and go to a different niche. I got involved in the safety niche. Never did it before the economy crashed. We're talking about mines and manufacturers that have to teach their people safety, and they have to pay for that to be taught. I never did. I've been doing motivational leadership for the last mm-hmm. six years. Somebody said, Chad, would you come share your accident and tell people about the shortcut you took? Maybe you could inspire them to think before they act. Well, that's what I teach my kids. And so now I find myself going back to what my mom and dad taught me, an expert that I've been at my whole life, but I haven't been teaching it. That has been the biggest boost. That's what sent me worldwide. The safety industry has sent me. Chad, we want you to go to our gold mine here in Santiago. We need you to be in Australia next month for this. We need you to be over in Peru for this. That is what has sent me, that, that niche. Never plan on doing safety at all. Never thought of that. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. I, I'm, not, not for, I'm not saying for me. I, I, no, I mean, it's, what's amazing, amazing is that, amazing. that here is... And, and I think the applicable point here is you had an area of expertise that you were able to recognize when someone else revealed it to you. And you're like, yeah, I didn't recognize it. Right. What? Yeah, that's like, right. That's right. I can do this. And that turns out to be the difference that makes the difference as your business continues to expand exponentially. You, Brian, you nailed it. I didn't recognize it. Somebody else recognized it within me and said, would you be willing to give that? Out of my comfort zone? Absolutely. Out of my realm? Absolutely. Didn't consider myself a Carl Potter, who's a CSP yep. expert on safety, right? Didn't, mm-hmm. didn't consider myself a Billy Robbins, CSP expert on safety. Didn't know those guys before. Mm-hmm. Know those guys, and I share the stage together. I had no idea. And so that's, that's, that's part of the journey. 2007 was the year of sevens. And now you've got a new niche. It's taking you worldwide. Yep. What's the next step in your business's journey? The next step is kind of following the John C. Maxwell, Harvey McKay business model. And that is providing services to people without me physically having to be on site. Phil Van Hoosier is becoming an expert at this. Sam Silverstein is becoming an expert at this. You're providing services through video and webinars that are five minutes that the guys need to see on a consistent basis. And you can provide these to people, whether you're in the customer service world, whether you're in the safety world, whether in the leadership world, where people can actually see you without you having to be present. Brian, I am, I am gone a lot, and I have four children mm-hmm. that are young. I have a young family. And, uh, and, and I am gone more than half, half the time. So when I'm home, it's quality time, not quantity. And my wife and I have made that work. But I would love to be able to do, as my kids are starting to play middle school and high school ball, and do, still bring in that same revenue mm-hmm. and not have to be in the present at that site. And so John C. Maxwell has mastered this. Harvey McKay has mastered this. Steph Duplice in Africa has mastered long-term contracts without having to travel out of Africa where he lives. So South America. So I am moving my business that direction. 
So I'm going to guess here the first early adopter of hologram technology will be you. <laughs> and we'll see how that all pans out. I, I don't know if that's the case or not, but I, that's the direction that we're moving at. That's in our strategic plan. We do strategic planning in my office just like the NSA board of directors and the staff do to make NSA more successful during a challenging economy. How can we retain members and bring them more value? Well, maybe NSA should get in the safety business. And I'm saying that symbolically mm -hmm. because that's what happened to me. And so that's, that's kind of where we're at. And safety now has been at least 65% of our business the last two years, uh, if not maybe a little bit more. But, but, and the other will come back, I think, over time. But that's, that's an interesting uh, thing to compare you. And one thing I've heard Alan Weiss say was basically a huge percentage of your income is now coming from an area that you didn't didn't even exist oh, yeah. three, yeah. four years ago. Yeah. I never planned on that, and that's what took me from staff number three to staff number four and soon five. We will have to get a fifth. Once we get these long-term contracts in place, that's going to need to be managed by a fifth person because we just don't have the staffing for that. My two jobs are to focus on the next client that I'm going to and be prepared to customize that puppy for them, and I must take care of my health. All right, stuff speakers should buy. We're with Brett Clay. He is an expert on change leadership and author of the book Selling Change. Brett, what stuff should speakers buy? How about a skin for your phone? A skin for your phone. It sounds very reptilian here. So uh, for those of us who don't know quite what you mean, what is a skin for your phone? Sure. You know how every phone has uh, these cases that protect it because I dropped my phone to uh, least once a day. If it weren't for the fact that I have a protective case on there, I'd lose my phone in a nanosecond. Well, actually, I was at uh, National back in Florida and ran into Jill Conrath, who just had got her first skin for her iPhone, which one of the NSA chapters had given her. Okay, when you say skin, so basically this is a customizable back cover that can come in any colors or any design that you want that's turns your phone into a little mini billboard. That's right. And the company that I use that, that she turned me on to is called Casemate. And all you do is you just go to casemate.com, select on your phone, your model, and then just upload a JPEG or a mm -hmm. GIF of whatever you art that you want to be on the phone. So I use my book cover. And right. For I those of you in VOE land, I'm looking at Brett's uh, iPhone here, in the back of his iPhone here, and it basically looks exactly like his book cover. And so there you are, because I'm sure you're constantly on your phone getting calls from high-paying clients. That's right, yes. Uh, and people in the airport are looking at you and they're seeing selling change. That's right. And it, it, people uh, do look at it, I think. Another skin that's really powerful is the laptop cover. So like the, the back of your monitor screen, your laptop. Right. And, you know, it's, the concept is very similar to these, what they call wraps, like on buses. Mm -hmm. So here in Seattle, you know, the buses are always just completely wrapped in like Google or Yahoo or whatever. So you can sort of do a wrap for your PC. And same thing, you just, there are, on that one, there's a number of companies you go to. You just upload the art and it comes as a, like a Mylar sheet mm -hmm. with some adhesive just sticks right on. So every time you pop up your laptop, then people will see it. And that's, I'm not sure I'd want to be doing that in the Starbucks where I live, sure. uh, being so loud with a, such a billboard. But certainly when you're in business meetings or conferences and speaking, why not have your laptop say a message that you want your audience to see if it's sitting there on the projector in front of the audience? So you can take the skin off? Yes. Is it, I mean, a, is it a one-shot use? It's not going to look very pretty when you put it back on a second time. All right. So, But it's definitely removable. If you want to change mm -hmm. the skin or you want to you change your branding or whatever, it's not like you've just tanked your laptop. 
And how much does like one of these skins cost? They're about $30. Okay. So it's, yeah. not, it's not too expensive. Whether it's a case for your iPhone or Android or Windows phone or for a skin for your PC, it's right around that price point. You know, for something that affordable, imagine, uh, I'm just kind of riffing on what you're doing here, but imagine you're doing a big engagement with a client and you mix your logo with their logo or even better, their event. Exactly. So, like, let's say you're doing the, oh, I don't know, uh, the sales conference for Blue Widget Makers. Exactly. The Blue Widget Makers Conference, and they've got their blue logo, Widget Maker logo. Selling change comes to the Blue Widget Makers Association. You could have a skin on your laptop that's tied into their event. No one would have that, and they would just say, you are the coolest person on the planet. That's right. What a great way to reinforce your brand and their brand and make them feel like you have you've are really fitting in a piece of their – an integral part of their event. For 30 bucks. Ah, December. The season of giving that comes but once a year, right? Well, not at NSA, where the spirit of giving is year-round. We are an organization of givers. When I visit our chapters and talk with fellow members, I see the spirit of NSA manifested in myriad ways, modeled after our founder, Cavett Robert. How do we serve thee? Let me count the ways. First, our members give to other members to help them be successful. We give business advice in chapter meetings and mastermind groups. We mentor newer speakers, and we share our financial resources with the NSA Foundation so that fellow members in crisis can receive aid from the Professional Speakers Benefit Fund, or PSBF. Most of us know about these ways to give, but you may not know about some of the other ways NSA members give. Second, NSA members give to their chapters. I visited the St. Louis chapter in June and told Scott Ginsburg how impressed I was by the four to seven hours of writing he does every day. I also expressed the thought that more speakers should try this technique. Turns out, several chapter members had also requested the same thing of him. So, he put together a writing retreat for them. He arranged the location, took registrations, sequestered them in a room, taught them his methods, and stayed with them from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. to cheer them on. He gave his time out of the kindness of his heart. Third, chapters give to their communities through various charitable projects. NSA Colorado member Don Cooper coordinates an annual speech contest for the Tennyson Center, Colorado's leading care and educational center for abused, neglected, and at-risk children. NSA New Jersey gives out a scholarship to benefit the Stand and Deliver program geared toward improving the speaking and communication skills of urban youth. NSA North Texas held a fundraiser to provide registration for some chapter members to attend the NSA Foundation events at the convention, thus helping both their chapter members and the foundation at the same time. Our NSA chapters really have the spirit of giving. Fourth, many chapter members expand their influence for the maximum good. 
because of what Vanna Novak from NSA Northwest learned about serving and being an effective leader through NSA, she was able to found and lead her nonprofit group for the past 18 years, which offers leadership development programs for Asian, Pacific Islander, and Hispanic professionals. And after watching the positive impact the NSA Foundation had on its members, Scott Friedman, Janice Stanfield, and Mary Kelly founded Together We Can Change the World, which raises money for orphanages and children's homes in Southeast Asia and helps create sustainability by teaching kids and empowering kids to make healthy decisions. They've also recruited other members of NSA to go with them on their international service trips, including John Crudelli, Darren LaCroix, Rebecca Morgan, Mike Podolinski, Jonathan Lowe, Shari Harley, Mark Camacho, and Maria Kasova. Bottom line, those are just four of the ways that NSA is at the center of a powerful ripple effect that impacts lives in ways we never imagined possible. We're touching the world, and it all started right here with NSA. Members give to members. Members give to chapters. Chapters give to the community. The member community gives to the world. My holiday season wish is that these examples encourage you to explore how you can live the spirit of Cavett. That spirit of giving that is NSA. Give back to another member, your chapter, your community, or the world. Happy holidays. Each month, VOE closes with a special segment called VO Me. That's basically commentary by me about some aspect of platform skills marketing or just something that strikes my fancy. This time, the topic is the self-Webster technique. Now, first, let's be clear on what this technique is not. It is not quoting from Webster's Dictionary. There's only one thing that I think audiences hate more than being asked to raise their hands if they want to double their income or be more successful than they are now. And that is when a speaker takes a common word like courage or service and says, according to Webster's, the definition of courage is, and then reads the definition aloud that is also on screen in his or her PowerPoint slide. No audience member ever went, wow, that is so different from what I was thinking courage meant. I am really going to start listening more attentively now. Okay, so that's what this technique is not. What self-Webster is, is coming up with your own term in order to create a new perception, increase appreciation for a concept, or make an idea more memorable. Here's an example. Years ago, a colleague and I coined the term emphatitudes. That's when senior executives emphatically state platitudes to employees at a meeting as if they were actual insights, and then wonder why no one cares. When I would share that with leadership audiences, it would compel them to mentally process the unfamiliar phrase, emphatitudes. And when I gave them the definition, they would all laugh nervously and self-consciously, exactly the reaction that would prepare them for what came next. Now, another example of the self-Webster technique comes from Steve Weber. Now, Steve is an NSA member out of Montana, and as far as I know, he is the world's only licensed Forrest Gump tribute performer and speaker. Now, he speaks to audiences about improving performance through gumption 
and personal responsibility. Now, during Steve's presentations, he often asks audience members if they are gumptionable. Now, after hearing that, they want to know what he means. I mean, gumption, they basically get, but gumptionable? There's a twist to that, and they are curious. Steve creates curiosity through self-Webster. Plus, it sets him apart because no other speaker out there is using the phrase gumptionable. Of course, the master of self-Webster has to be our very own Patricia Fripp. Now, she peppers her speeches and training sessions with catchy self-Webster terms. For example, she blends the idea of a quote with a witticism with her name. What is it called? A Frippicism. Now, when she gives her audiences a task, she doesn't assign them an exercise. They complete a Frippercise. And Fripp even uses her name as an acronym for key concepts in her sales presentations. Fripp. Frequently reinforce ideas that are productive and profitable. Now, of course, it helps that Fripp has a short and punchy last name. I would definitely not recommend you make an acronym out of your name if it is Hershkowitz, Culberson, or Kuzmeski. Now, of course, Self-Webster is itself a great example of Self-Webster. Like it or hate it, you've heard it once, you know what it means, and you will recognize the term six weeks from now or six months. Coin away. Well, that's it for this month, but be sure to sign up for the NSA Winter Conference. The theme is Monetize Your Message, and that's exactly what it's going to help us all do. It's February 3rd through 5th in Dallas, Texas. Okay, let's keep the conversation going on VUE by checking out our posts on Facebook. We'll talk again in January. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.